Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Pray with me. Lord, help us to see today that your meaning is love. Your meaning is love. And love will make all things well. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today begins the season of Lent. As we journey toward Easter, which is the culmination of the Christian year, this season is traditionally set aside for rethinking, recentering, and returning home. It's a time when we go out into the wilderness, not to suffer, but to simplify. Not to shame ourselves, but to find our truest selves again. To help us in this season, this year we are exploring the Apostles' Creed. This ancient litany is shared by all Christian traditions. Uh, It predates any of the divisions that currently are in the church, and it states succinctly the central mysteries which the church has pondered for millennia. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Maybe some of you grew up in traditions where you memorized that or you said that all the time. Uh, One of my favorite novels, uh, there's a character who realizes she loses her faith when she realizes she can say the Lord's Prayer quickly but not slowly, uh, which I think is a deeply insightful thing. These are words sometimes that we say over and over and over uh, and, and don't necessarily consider. And also, they're often treated as propositions of dogma to affirm. But rather than treating these as dogma to affirm, we in this series are going to be returning to a more ancient way of holding creeds. We tend to read the statements of the creed as if they're like almost scientific assertions. The boiling point of water at sea level is 100 degrees Celsius. The square of the hypotenuse of a right triangle is the sum of the square of the sides. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. (laughs) I did have to look up those facts to make sure that my science and math were correct. I was like, I'm pretty sure this is right, but I just, 
I can't say the wrong thing. That would be embarrassing. Uh, Especially since today we live in a secular society where it really is a live option whether or not you affirm the existence of a divinity, which 500 years ago was not an option for most humans. Uh, It's hard not to hear the creed as just stating what we Christians affirm to be factual. But there's another kind of knowing other than facts or theories that you can articulate. Because core to the way that we as humans navigate the world is what we might call orientation or engagement. For example, um, who here has learned to drive stick shift? Okay, wow, okay, good, well done, well done. Uh, It's a challenge, right? Uh, I use this analogy a lot, but I I think it's worth it. Um, When I was first driving, I learned on stick. And there were many nerve-wracking moments where I couldn't, for the life of me, get the, the clutch and the gas and the selector all at the right moment. I was grinding gears or I was jerkily stalling out in the middle of an intersection while my mother was screaming. <laughs> it was years before I stopped feeling this like leaden fear in my stomach anytime I had to start on an incline. And I was like, ooh. But over time, I came to know how to engage the car. My body took that over. I just did it. It had become part of the rhythms of how I lived. And I was oriented successfully to driving stick as just a matter of course. This kind of knowing operates all over the place for us. Even before we can stop to articulate it, we know how to navigate the world and our relationships in all kinds of inarticulate but deeply meaningful ways. In fact, what we articulate is really just the tip of the iceberg of what we know. This embodied, engaged, orienting knowledge is the most important kind we possess. Uh, It's more important than the factual propositions. It tells us who we are, where we are, and how to successfully navigate the world without having to think too much about it. This is how creeds operate. You might think of creeds as a map. Uh, Before you set on a hike, you review the map of the trail. So you're going to see where you need to fork left and where you're going to cross a bridge and where you expect to summit the hill. So you have an idea based on the way the map is laid out of the gradations and how steep the trail might be, but that map knowing is not knowledge of the trail. It's not until you walk the trail that you experience the grueling switchbacks or the relief of the cool canopy of the trees spreading their leaves to block the hot sun or the peacefulness of the gurgle of the creek and its icy sharpness as it goes under the bridge, or the joy of coming to the summit and the view that you see there. And that left fork might still sneak up on you, even though you kind of know where it is, because knowing the map and experiencing the trail are two very different things. And of course, the map only exists to let you hike the trail. Uh, You don't get any points for knowing the map. It's the trail that's the point. Even so, creeds are maps. They tell you the contours of life. They're guides that are passed down from humans who've walked the way before, summarizing what they've found, but they are not the trail. They are a starting point to get you walking so that you can learn the way yourself in your body. Creeds like the Apostles' Creed help us imagine the way, but the way will still surprise us. And over years, we may find new ways of describing what the creeds are pointing at. 
We might be walking the same trail, but we might find it's more helpful to pick out different details or describe them in a different way, to guide us a bit more clearly, to help us see where the rough patches will be and to anticipate the challenges and the beauties we'll encounter. In this series, we're going to be exploring the Apostles' Creed as icons, images that stir our imagination, images that move us. And as we say every week here at Pearl, what animates us most truly, what we want to be animated by, is divine love. So we explore these creeds not as statements to affirm, but as images that get us moving on the trail to experience and to wonder and to imagine the world through the lens of divine love. So, this week we begin with the first clause. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God, the Father. First, we should notice the emphasis here is not on the word believe, but on the word father. Uh, The creed was written long before it was possible for most people to disbelieve in a deity of some kind. And so the statement was instead intended to identify which deity, what God we're talking about, who is the divine that Jesus taught us to follow. And that God is Father. Now, we have to do a little bit of peeling back of layers to get the heart here because uh, what the map is pointing us to, it's gotten covered over over the years with some things that aren't very helpful. So first, when we hear God the Father, we may immediately imagine an old white man with a flowing beard uh, like this one. Father and patriarchy and whiteness are tied together in Western Christianity, and that can make it hard for some of us to be excited about God the Father. But we might say instead God the Mother, God the Divine Parent, Because the point here is not the maleness, but the parental love. Similarly, uh, patriarchy can be hard to shake here. Um, These are very common icons in the early and medieval church. And uh, and I I just find them humorous because it's like big God the Father and medium-sized Jesus and teeny Holy Spirit. It's like a Goldilocks, you know, this Jesus is just right. Um, And they look like nesting dolls, too, like little (laughs) nesting dolls. God the Father might strike our imagination as having to do with power, control, the bigness of God. Uh, And it's true that these aspects of God the Father have dominated much of church history. The white male God has taken up a lot of space. But there is another way for this clause, I believe in God the Father, to stir our imagination. This painting, um, The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt, has played a big role in my life. At the center of the painting, in the light, is the embrace, slow and still and tender and intimate, of the wealthy father and his impoverished wayward son. This, This illustrates one of Jesus' key parables from the Gospel of Luke, and the image gets to the heart of God the divine parent, belonging. In the parable, the son offends tradition and custom and father and demands his inheritance early and goes and squanders it all in dissolution. And returning home, desperate and ashamed, the son is rehearsing his apology. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Simply let me be a servant. But the father, seeing the returning son, 
casts dignity and decorum aside and sprints to the child. And here we see the moment of the embrace. He gathers him in his arms. And the son begins his apology. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He just cuts him off. He won't hear it. Because the son is always and still the beloved child. I believe in God, the divine parent. The creed is telling us that at the heart of existence, the truest thing in the world is that we belong. We're beloved. Divinity is like a parent who stops our ashamed apologies saying, stop, stop, you are always the beloved. And that's all that matters. The creed invites us to imagine. What if we were to start every day with a deep breath and recall that the deepest truth of reality is that I am known, I belong, I'm wanted, and that nothing I do will ever change that? What if we breathed in the divine parent and exhaled delights in me today? Well, the clause continues, identifying the divine that Jesus taught his followers to trust. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Creator. Well, okay, so again, we have to remember that the creed is not in the context of a debate between creationists and evolutionists. It's not some supposed conflict between religion and science. Uh, we're not saying, see, there's a creation, literally, in seven days, this many, 5,000 years ago, and whatever. Uh, we're not saying these things. Instead, uh, we, we need to also set aside some images that I think are not very helpful. Uh, first off, uh, again, the old white man in power, uh, designing while mankind passively receives, or the hierarchical orderer. Uh, this was really common in the medieval uh, era, this idea of the great chain of beings. So you've got God at the top and then descending layers of creation from the most perfect, the angels, and then you get humanity, and then you've got the beasts, and then you've got trees, and at the bottom, I'm sure there's like, you know, earthworms down there somewhere, and then I think that's Satan at the bottom. Sucks to be there. Uh, so, here God is at the highest level of existence, and unfortunately this idea of these descending levels of, of perfection give this idea of hierarchy, uh, where we are not really part of creation, we are over creation, and so the trees and the rivers and the animals are just there for our use and our exhaustion, which has led to our climate disaster today. Rather, naming the divine creator emphasizes creativity. Everything that is is an expression of creative outpouring, which is to say that everything is relational. This image is from a chapel in Dallas, Texas, and I like it as a way of gesturing toward God as the creator. The Eastern Orthodox Church has an idea perichoresis, uh, which is this circular and weaving dance uh, to point toward the heart of God. Rather than a one-sided creation, God just deigning that all things be and creation following on God's divine fiat, imagine creation as a playful interweaving dance. 
the creator invites us to move into the dance and add our steps, which are really and truly our creative contribution. And responding to our steps, the creator moves and spins and circles and plays, beckoning us again to contribute and to create in our own ways. As image bearers of the divine creator, our many activities and occupations our work and our play, our gardening and our baking, our music and our housework, our writing and our farming, our engineering and our relationships, our medicine and technology, our sleep and our relaxation, all of it is creative response and relational engagement with the world we find ourselves in. The creator does not so much simply make a world as create an environment of relationships. Atoms and molecules, forces and poles, chemical reactions and cellular division, all making possible muscles and fibers and bones and neurons and organs and flesh and senses and perception and consciousness and identities, interaction on interaction on interaction that enable us to become ourselves interactive. And that environment of relationship is a dance, and the dance makes us capable of dancing. And we too, in the image of the divine, with all we are, create environments for others to belong, to dance, to create. Our children, our employees, our friends, our loved ones, with whom we eat and breathe and walk and laugh and play and argue and fight and cry and dream and rest and dance. God the creator, the creative, spirals outward in generous invitation making relational space where we too can become generous creators. In 1373, a woman named Julian, living in Norwich, gravely ill, experienced a series of visions, which she later wrote and explained. These mystic visions were, in a real sense, Julian walking the terrain of which the creeds are the map. One of Julian's visions particularly captures me. Uh, in this vision, uh, God shows her, she writes, he showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut laying in the palm of my hand. And imagine that. You've got this little thing, this little ball, like a marble, in your hand. And it's frail, it's delicate. And Julian came to understand that this delicate thing was everything that exists, all of creation. And she trembled for how vulnerable that little cosmos was and yet she came to understand that this little hazelnut was precious and safe, deeply safe. She writes, in this little thing I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. The third is that God preserves it. But what did I see in it? It is that God is the creator and protector and the lover. Much later in her life, Julian was still pondering this vision, and she asked God to help her understand what was the meaning. And she reflected, I was answered in spiritual understanding, and it was said, what, do you wish to know your Lord's meaning in this thing? Know it well, love was his meaning. Who reveals it to you? Love. What did he reveal you? Love. Why does he reveal it to you? For love. So I was taught that love is our Lord's meaning. Love is our Lord's meaning. 
I know this sounds very simplistic. It's the kind of thing we say to our toddlers every week as they hug a heart-shaped pillow and we tell them, you are loved. And yet, this is really all there is. God, the divine parent, whose acceptance and tender delight in us is so constant that there is never any cause to be ashamed. Love is the meaning. God, the creator who spins out a universe of relationality, a universe where we not only receive but co-create, a dance where all contribute. Love is the meaning. And the creed is a map to point us to that terrain of love, to guide our feet until we find our way into love. The very simple task of this Christian way is for us to learn the map and to walk the path so that slowly through a lifetime, we get deep, deep into our bones, into our guts, that everything and everyone is loved. Love is the lens through which all things are truly seen. Love is the orientation to the world which is true. Pearl Church, I know this sounds overly simplistic, I know it's tempting to make this all much more complicated and to add doctrine on doctrine on doctrine until our faith is a Baroque edifice of things to believe. And it's tempting to say that love is weak in the face of pandemics and death and wars and injustice and exhaustion. But the work of our lives, the quest that God in Christ is calling us to pursue is to know in our bodies and in our bones and in our guts and in our hearts that we are beloved. That we're delightful, that we belong. And if we do that, then we will have learned from the map and be able to freely run along the trail. And in the words of Dame Julian, we'll know all shall be well and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Let's pray. God, help us to see that love is the meaning. Love is your meaning. And all things shall be made well. that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.